question as we begin. Uh, how many of you know what it feels like to be discouraged? How many of you know what it feels like um, to be confused? How many of you are, could say today uh, that you feel discouraged and confused right now? I've been thinking about life in two categories. Oversimplification, I know, but it could uh, yield a rich insight for some of us today. But I, I think about life in the at-first stage. That's when something is getting started. That's the wedding or the honeymoon. It's when the church begins, the new job, the new endeavor, project, whatever it might be. There's the at-first stage, and then there's the later on. The at-first stage, in some ways, uh, though fear and trembling could be a part of it, I know that in my own experience, but the at-first stage could be characterized in the following ways. There's excitement, there's euphoria, like chemicals and dopamine, things are released into your brain, into your bloodstream. There is elation that's involved with at-first. You're just getting started and it feels right. But then, sports fans, the later on, bureaucracy, busy work, blisters, sore muscles, aching back, and you can become discouraged. You can become confused. I have found in my own life, by way of confession, that one feeds the other. When I'm discouraged, I can become confused. When I'm confused, I can become discouraged. There's an old preacher fable about the devil having a garage sale. Y'all ever heard this where uh, they, you know, the devil opens up his home, his garage, and people come early because it's a garage sale. Ladies, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? 4.30, 5 a.m., people are showing up in the, in the darkness of the morning. And all these things the devil has for sale, there are items and implements and tools, but one of them is marked not for sale. And a browser asks the devil, what's this and why is it labeled as such? And he tells him, he says, well, you see, I have many tools, many items, many implements, but this is my most prized one. This is called discouragement and it's not for sale because when I can get this inside someone's soul, it's over. And you and I have to be careful. Discouragement can be a warning light on the dashboard, but it can be so much deeper than that. It can be persistent and pervasive and can get the best of us. How many of you are discouraged? How many of you know what it feels like? How many of you are confused? A letter written long ago, this marvelous sermon bumper video that we'll maybe watch a few times during this message series, gives us a, just a snippet, a little tidbit of the hist history and background of the church at Colossae. And it was written so long ago, but so much of it can speak to us today. So I am really looking forward to walking through this together uh, on Sundays, on the weekend messages, and also inviting you uh, to join a group to get out of rows and into circles. You can connect uh, the church. It's a great time, not just because it's the beginning of the year, but our team is making it really easy for you uh, to, to jump in. Some of you could even lead a group. You say, well, I'm not a teacher. You don't even have to be a teacher. We give you a, a group guide, sermon notes, and all you need to do is facilitate the discussion. We have three parts to it. Connect, which asks the question, what, how, how does this topic relate to me? Engage, ask the chief question, what does the Bible say about it? And then apply is how can it change us and we are blessed Susan and I are blessed to be in community and want to invite all of you who aren't to overcome a fear or just a hesitancy of being so busy we're awfully busy okay I'm not saying we're busier than anybody but we're awfully busy but we take time to get in community I hope you will consider that um, as well Colossians a little bit of the background of this book it was written by Paul he's sort of the grandfather of this church and unlike some of the other letters that are written and y'all don't mind Van and Emily. They just baptized a child so they can walk in and sit on the front row. They are blessed and highly favored. Uh, 
Emily's embarrassed. Girl, you know I love you and love Van. How proud, we're so proud of y'all, seriously, and the way you love and minister to people. And... All right, I was preaching a sermon. I don't know where I was. Colossians, yeah. So Paul's the grandfather. Unlike some of the other warm epistles, letters that he wrote, he had never visited there, but he had a, he had a youngster that he mentored named Timothy. And then the, he preached the gospel. If you want to learn a little bit of it, go to Acts 19 and you'll see Paul preaching the gospel boldly. This is good news. We remind you all the time. This is good news. This isn't hatred or intolerance or exclusion. It's good news. Open all. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And that's the good news of the gospel that you can be saved it can affect your eternity that's what's at stake here and Paul preaches and what happens anybody know when he preached in Acts 19 like a lot of Acts what happened what was the response of the people the answer mixed reviews some people responded some people rolled their eyes some of you roll your eyes you think I can't see you when I'm preaching some turned away some rejected it some maligned Paul and some attacked him we use the word attack in a funny way I heard someone argue the other day not in my house in one of y'all's homes and somebody said man you're you're attacking me there was no attack we kind of use it playfully though not playful but this was actual attacks that Paul was subjected to risky adventurous dangerous getting this started and there was one in particular, a man named Epaphras, who received the gospel and he took it back to his hometown, the hometown of Colossae. And here's what I love about the canon of scripture. If you ever studied that or want to dig deeper into how we got the Bible and how we got the books of the Bible. But I, I think it's so providentially sovereign and good of God to give us this book of Colossae because it wasn't like a Corinth or an Ephesus or a Rome. It wasn't a sophisticated urban cosmopolitan city. It was sort of a, a town that time had forgotten. Its best days were behind it. Think, if you will, about the movie Cars. Y'all remember Cars? You remember Radiator Springs? The interstate had bypassed Route 66, and it was, you know, economy was not growing and not much was happening there. It was dilapidated, and kind of its best days were behind it. Colossi is sort of like that. Isn't it good of God, though, to give us a letter to people who probably had low self-esteem? who weren't strutting themselves like Paris or San Francisco of our day, beating their chest and, and being proud of who they were, where they're from. In fact, Paul's going to remind them, this is insightful later, we'll get there, but Paul says, you're a citizen of heaven. So if you got low self-esteem, if you don't like Colossae, if you don't enjoy living in Radiator Springs, then let me tell you where, where your real home is. It's an eternal kingdom, a real city, a new city, that God is building. And so people with low self-esteem are getting this letter and Epaphras is excited to bring it back to them. And he does, but he, because at first moves on to later on, the euphoria, the elation, the excitement, the easy stuff was beginning to wear off and it became hard because can I say, even today, I know it's a lot different, but even today there's a cost in being a Jesus follower. There's a cost in being willing to stand out. And Paul says to them, he writes this letter, but this guy who had received it and taken it to Colossae travels a thousand miles to visit Paul in Rome. How did he do that? By foot? By camel? He made it. And Paul is trying to encourage him to live in the later on segment. 
And they, they had opposition. They had false teachers that came in their midst and that were teaching them that Jesus was not enough. And so if there's anything that we want to bring forth all three weeks in Colossians Stand in Christ is we want to say to you that Jesus is enough. The gospel is so freeing. The gospel is so poignant and powerful. The gospel is so brilliant, but it's brilliant in its simplicity and nothing else needs to be added onto it. And I think it's funny. Now, I'm not old, all right? but I'm older. And certainly as I study the sea of faces before me, I'm older than most of you in this room. And some of you, I don't know, it's kind of hard to tell. How many of you are young? How many of you are old? How many of you don't know? If you don't know, you're old. Okay. But here, here's what I know. We want to be gospel fanatics about other things except the gospel. And we get excited about this way or that way. And I watch pastors do it. I watch churches do it. We act like there's a ton of stuff laid out in Scripture by explanation. You know the Scripture invites us to imagination as well. It tells us how church is to be led, led but it doesn't tell us everything about how church to be, is to be led. And so some people get all excited about the way they do things. We try to hold that loosely around here. It tells us the character of people who should lead churches. But it didn't tell us everything about the government or the bureaucracy or the politics of it all. It gives that to freedom and imagination for us to express, to be the body of Christ, expressed differently around the globe, even in our city and town. But the gospel does not need to be added to, can I say it again, Jesus is enough. So these people at Colossae had two, uh, two points of opposition. One is synchronization. It's uh, this idea of the Greek world. The, uh, the Greeks loved to debate. They loved rhetoric and logic. They loved to sit around. And they didn't do what my 15-year-old did last night after we went to see a movie. He didn't go to Shaggy's on the res and watch sports on the flat screen. They liked to sit around and talk about justice and beauty and truth and plurality and singularity and eternity. And they talked about these things. And the people that were most admired Remember, this is the world that gave us Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and many, many others. Great thought in those days. And there were ideas that were infiltrating that were saying, in fact, Jesus is good. Great guy. He's definitely changing the world. Look, look at the beauty of his sacrifice and his love and look how it's taken fruit and how it is changing the world. But let's add some stuff to it. Let's not be that. Let's not do that. Let's not add anything to Jesus. He's enough. A second battle beyond just the synchronization of ideas in the Greek culture, it was the Roman Empire. You guys know that the Roman Empire was vast. You not, may not be, you may not know how vast. Lauren, I know you were in London this past summer. Do you know that the Roman Empire in the day stretched all the way to London? There's archaeological evidence of the Romans being in charge of London back in the day. Did y'all know that? The Roman Empire flexed its muscle and existed for some 1,500 years. 1,500 plus years the Romans were in charge. Just for perspective, our nation has only been in existence, what, 250 years. So this Roman Empire was big and bad. Now, Paul, Epaphras, Timothy, Colossae, they didn't know what we know today. We can look back in history and see that Rome collapsed. But they didn't know that. They didn't know that. And so they lived with this dread and this fear and this confusion and this discouragement of how do they follow Jesus, who seems so awfully countercultural, but also live in this empire of Rome flexing its muscle. When Rome flexed its muscle, when it demonstrated its power, it did so by crucifying people on a cross. When Jesus demonstrated his power and flexed his muscle, if you will, he did so by being crucified 
on a cross. Pastor John Ortberg points out who's alive today. Some 2,000 years later, who's alive today? Ortberg says that we name children, our children, after Jesus' followers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Sarah, Elizabeth, Mary, and we give Roman names to dogs, pizza parlors, and casinos. (laughs) So today I ask you, with the backdrop of this book of Colossians, whose empire is greater? What is greater, love or hatred? What is greater, self-will and promotion or laying down your life and sacrifice to a father? So this is the backdrop of Colossians. Let's read it. We're going to roll through 14 verses. We'll have it on the screen. If you want to open your Bible, that'd be good as well. Colossians 1, 1 to 14. Y'all ready? Y'all ready for this? Don't be singing. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to you, to us, your love in the spirit. I love this. Verse 9 to 14 is a prayer, and I think one of the most beautiful, one of the most insightful in the Bible. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and asking. When someone asks, how can you pray for me? If you can't think of anything, say, pray Colossians 1, 9 through 14. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Now, there's no way in the minutes that we have left that we can jump into that at great length. But I just want to point out a couple of things to you in the balance of our time. The first is the word saint. How many of you have ever been called a saint in a non-sarcastic way? Anybody? How many of you think of yourself as a saint? It's just kind of an odd word that we don't, outside of football in this region of the country, we don't just, we don't use the word a lot. It's not something we call people. It's not something we refer to ourselves as. Let's get a little personal. Pretend that I moved away. Pretend that another church called me and they offered me a lot of money, a better salary and benefits package than I have now. And I took that job in another state. Now don't get excited. It's just a hypothetical scenario. But let's say I took that job and I wrote to you and I said, dear Fondren Church, I wouldn't call myself an apostle because some of y'all know me, I'm far from it. But I would just say, hey, I'm RG out here, you know, living life, whatever, to the, to the saints at Fondren Church. Now, if I address you guys that way, you may say, well, I attend Fondren Church or I'm a member. Some of you helped start Fondren Church. But would you consider yourself a saint? Do you identify yourself that way? Simple definition, if you don't learn anything today, walk away with this. Saint, by definition, means set apart. It means that you are in process, 
You're beginning to live differently, not perfectly, but differently. You're not acquiescing to the culture. You're not following along and wanting to be uh, the expression we use sometimes, the dead fish floating downstream. You're willing to go upstream. You don't want to be like everyone else. You, you want to follow Jesus. And by the way, when we're reading Colossians 1, did you see the fruit that it was bearing, how it was increasing? When people really follow Jesus, this isn't about church size or growth. Don't, don't hear that. But when people are really following Jesus, people take notice. Are you with me? Some pastors say, well, healthy things grow, so we need to be growing. Well, unhealthy things grow as well. Weeds grow faster than grass. Cancer ain't good. Cancer grows. God's in charge of the growth. Paul would later say to the church at Corinth, Paul, Paul plants and Apollos waters, but it's God who causes the growth. But, hijack that for a moment. But listen, when God is doing a work, there's fruit and increase and people take notice. And so to be a saint is to, is to be set apart. I love what Paul says in this passage in the prayer, in the latter part of it. He says that in him we have redemption, that is the forgiveness of sins. A saint, I would add to the set-apartness, is one who is forgiven and who begins to live like it. So for you, take perfection off the table. Are you living like you're forgiven? Do people notice a lightness about you and a levity? And I would say, from my experience, a joy walking with Jesus, knowing you've got nothing to prove, nothing to hide, and honestly, nothing to fear. Because you're in his hands. Because he's got you set apart in that you're forgiven and that you're beginning, you're beginning to look like it. Notice the language that he uses. I, I love it. He says we're qualified. He's qualified us. He's delivered us. He's transferred us. He's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. He's qualified us. He's transferred us. He's delivered us. He's redeemed us. He has forgiven us. And can I tell you, some of you can testify to this. Man, forgiveness is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Isn't it? Like somebody say amen. amen. Or, or I'm going to that other church. But anyway, <laughs> when, um, when my oldest son, RJ, was a young man, we noticed that he was a passionate guy. God just wired it in his DNA. He was passionate and, unlike his mama and me and probably the others, he was organized. So he's passionate and organized. And I don't know if any of you have seen this in any of your kids, but we noticed it early. He would get down on the floor and play with matchbox cars, and we could make him happy. Anytime we went to the store, just get some matchbox cars, and he could identify them all. He would code them and color coordinate them by make and model. I mean, he had it all, I mean, hundreds if not a thousand little cars in tackle boxes full that just I mean up to up probably probably up to my chest he loved cars and he loved Halloween and I remember early on on Halloween you know Halloween is about what it's about putting your kids in cute costumes and then adoring their cute costumes right and like oh what a cute costume and RJ is a little boy's like it's a competition let's go get candy he even persuaded us in his costume picking out 
when it was time to pick out costumes, like, I want something mobile. I want to be able to move. I want to go house to house fast and get all the candy that we can. And he would bring it back in buckets and he would color coordinate it. He would separate it, have the licorice and the Laffy Taffy over here and, you know, the, the chocolate over here. Some of the chocolate had to be put in the refrigerator. He, he learned that instinctively early on. And he just, he, he weighed it in the buckets. He had it all set out. He, had, he made his own little spreadsheet. He learned, he, he, would keep, he would monitor it and realize how much candy was in the bucket, how much he collected, how much was left over, how much he had eaten. And one night, I do what dads do. I went in while he was sleeping and I stole from his treasure trove. <laughs> and I lifted a few Butterfinger candy bars. The next day, I come home from work and he's waiting at the door. <laughs> he says, Dad, we need to talk. So I sit down, roll reversal, I sit down, he's standing over me, and he says, is there anything you need to tell me? <laughs> now I'm playing in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, did mom, did Susan rat me out? And I know this guy, man, he, had his, he brought out his little spreadsheet, he had numbers and symbols on it. And he looked, at, he looked down at it and looked up at me and said, Dad, I know you took a few Butterfingers. <laughs> and I start trying to, you know, enter into the story in my own little way, and I say, you know, Son, I'm, I'm a big part of your existence on this planet. All right, so let's start there. And what I learned in that scenario of Butterfingers, it's bigger than that. And there's something in me, y'all, I'm the pastor. There's something in me, I can stand here and admit, I don't want to admit my guilt. I want to deny and compare and minimize and rationalize. And what is it, if we could put this expression up? There is something in me, and I bet you've experienced it too, that I want to, when I'm guilty, I passionately defend myself or I irrationally justify myself. And the latter is never pretty. Ever done an intervention? Ever done an intervention? And it goes the way you don't want it to go? It's like, dude, the butterfingers were counted. It's you. And so we play this game when we're guilty, but redemption is you are guilty. Who's guilty? Raise your hand if you're guilty. Everybody's guilty. We can play a game of who's better. We can play the moral comparison game all we want. It's kind of futile, but everybody is guilty. Everybody has turned away. What scripture abundantly teaches is empirically verified in life. We all turn our way. We all get our hands caught in the candy jar. And then we want to play a game. Paul is writing to this church and reminding them of the simplicity of the gospel. Jesus is enough because you've been redeemed. You've been qualified. You've been transferred. You've been delivered. You have been redeemed. You have been forgiven. And so we can live like it. A prayer of David after immorality. Psalm 32, he prayed a prayer and he says, my bones wasted away when I kept secret... When I kept secret, my bones wasted away. And what David prayed a long time ago, science and medicine has confirmed all these years later that when we keep secrets and we're stressed about it, it adds literally our bones waste away. It is, there's decay and rot. It is not good inside of you when you hold on to something that needs to be confessed. Nowhere in Scripture does it talk about a value of concealment or containment or cover up. Look at the words highlighted in these four passages, two from Psalms and two from Peter's gospel. Psalm 32, one, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are. Psalm 32, five, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not 
cover my iniquity. First Peter 2, 16. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. First Peter 4, 8. You've heard this one. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love can't cover what you cover up. So redemption is this wonderful gift to walk in freedom of forgiveness, to be transferred. When I was in seminary, I had a professor early on say that there's a difference when you're reading these epistles, these letters from Paul, though they vary, there's some great similarities. And he talked about positionally and practically. And he said, Paul tells each church, each church that was increasing and flourishing and growing and multiplying, he tells each of them that, who, that he starts with who they are in Christ. Positionally, you have been qualified. You have been delivered. You have been transferred. You have been redeemed. You have been forgiven. But sometimes don't you feel the opposite? Sometimes don't you feel like you're caught in a vice grip? Sometimes don't you, don't you struggle with that secret sin quietly and your bones waste away? Sometimes don't you not feel like you're living for another kingdom? Because practically you haven't got it and I haven't got it deep in us. That's why we say often the gospel is not a message we go and preach to everybody all the time. We have to at first preach it to ourselves. You are free and you are forgiven and that's the gift. That's the blessing of the gospel in our lives. Second thing that I want to call your attention to, and by the way, let me just stop for a second and say, when it comes to forgiveness, when it comes to cover-up, we're not talking about butterfingers anymore. All right? God's talking to some of you about something else. You're forgiven. He loves you. You're forgiven. You can walk in that forgiveness. It's so much more freeing. Better for your bones. Second thing I want to point your attention to is beyond just the saintness of being called apart. Now, you're positionally a saint. You need to act like it. I need to act like it. Second thing is this idea of surrender. The word saint is used in these verses in verse 2, in verse 4, in verse 12. The word surrender is not used in most English translations. But I call your attention to what Paul says later when he talks about being filled with the knowledge of his will. His will. You have a will. Y'all agree that you have a will. Anybody got a strong will? Anybody been told by somebody, by spouse or parent or you know, you got a strong will. You get, how many of you raising a, at least one strong-willed child? Everybody, everybody has got a will. A movie came out in the 70s called Stepford Wives. Y'all remember that? And these women were robots. Terrible premise of a movie. Ladies, I just want to say terrible. But the Stepford Wives, they, they had no opinions. They would never grumble or argue or complain to their husbands. They would just cook and they would clean. They would get together and exchange recipes and coo over the clean floors. Uh, just just horrible, horrible horror movie, I would say. <laughs> and then later, not long after that, Hollywood doing Hollywood, they developed a sequel, Stepford Husbands. And the husbands were robots. They weren't real people, but they looked like it. They lived like they were, they, but they were equally pliable in the hands of their spouse. My wife said it wasn't a, wasn't a horror movie. It was an inspiring romantic comedy. <laughs> Step for children came along. Homework loving, house cleaning, devoted, dutiful, preppy, clothes wearing kids who just 
did it all right. And you and I know that those movies are movies. There are a departure. We, we go and we watch them to be entertained, to get outside of our monotony and the mundane of our lives. But people aren't robots. And you're not a robot. You have a free will. What's your will? And where does your will clash? Are you willing to be filled with the knowledge of his will? I tell young people when they talk to me about what's God's will for my life. That's a pretty big question, isn't it? What's God's will? Where, where do I go? Where, what, what do I study? Where, where do I end up? Who do I marry? What, what's my mission, my master, my mate? How do I live life? And Scripture tells people, uh, tells us to start with the Word. And there are some places in Scripture that says this is God's will. This is God's will that you would know Him, the Gospel of John. First Thessalonians 4, this is God's will that you would be thankful regardless of your circumstances. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. First, same chapter, First Thessalonians 4, it talks about how we should possess our bodies in sanctification and honor. God cares about your sexual ethic, and it's his will that you live in a certain way. But we don't want to start there, do we, because we got our will. Like, we want the other stuff. We want God to serve us. We really don't want to do his will. And Jesus, the best-selling book of all time and the most famous prayer ever prayed, the Lord's Prayer, there's an isolated phrase. I put it on the screen. Your will be done. To the Father, your will be done. In John 6, he prayed, my food is to do the will of the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, a Good Friday service, we had a cardiologist come and talk to us about the agony, what was happening in Jesus medically, literally sweating drops of blood and in his agony he said not my will father but yours be done he wanted the cup to pass from him if it's your will let this cup pass from me look at these all together the will your will be done on earth as it is in heaven my food is to do the will of him who sent me john 6 later in the later in the gospels if you are willing take this cup from me and then the submitted will yet not my will but yours be done are you willing to pray that prayer where is your will being combative with God's will? To be surrendered, to be a saint, to be separate, to be surrendered to him, to say, God, I want to be filled. Because here's the thing, we're filled with stuff. Like we fill our minds and fill our hearts and fill our schedules. We fill our schedules and our stuff and we're going to be filled with something. What's the saying, nature abhors a vacuum? Like something's going in there. Something, you're putting something in there. Like all of us are, but what are you being filled with? And so there's this prayer, a beautiful prayer. And notice, I said this at the 930 service, nowhere in this letter does Paul pray a prayer of subtraction. Now, this convicts me because a lot of my prayers are prayers of subtraction. Lord, remove this from me. Lord, take this out of my life. Lord, get this out of here. Lord, get them out of here. You ever pray prayers of subtraction? Not about you guys and another group of friends. But get, the, get this, get me out of here. It's a prayer of subtraction, but nowhere does Paul say, I'm praying that the Roman Empire would collapse. He didn't know the future of the Roman Empire. He just knew its reach. I don't even think that was in his cranium. He didn't pray for removal or subtraction. He prayed for them to grow right where they were. He didn't say, get out of that God-forsaken town either. Right where they are. No prayer of subtraction, but a prayer that God would work. Are you willing today to surrender your will to his? And I wonder where today you might be fighting him. This is real stuff, y'all. God has something for you. I wonder what role repentance could play in you today. 
I wonder how many of you are frustrating yourself and the people that you live with and you're living with fatigue because you're trying to prove something, you're hiding from something, you're running from something. And to be a forgiven person means you don't have to act that way anymore. You don't have to waste away. You don't have to cover up. You can let his righteousness cover you. Can I tell you, for me, I don't get it right a lot, but it's so freeing to live with this pervasive sense that I am forgiven. Yesterday, Susan and I celebrated our 23rd wedding anniversary by doing absolutely nothing. (laughs) I watched her the day before. I watched her bring four meals. Can I brag on her for just a second? I watched her bring four meals to people. Two that just had babies. One that just had a hard month. Um, Another one was somebody else going through something difficult. But four people. And she loves and she sacrifices and she serves. And I couldn't have chosen a better spouse. Y'all look at her and tell me, does she agree with what I'm saying here? Is she smiling as well? Yeah. Man, we wouldn't be where we are without the role of forgiveness, of being able to forgive each other. Because we, in the midst of the blessings and the romance and the fun and the travel and the three children that we're supremely proud of and the privilege we get to help lead Fondren Church, we are flawed and broken and sinful and we hurt each other time and time again. And I'm so thankful that I don't have to try to be perfect around her. But when I realize I have been forgiven, look, I experienced that and the levity and the lightness and the joy and then my ability to extend it to her. And y'all, that's something that could keep going. That's something that could flourish as we get older. At first, euphoric, excitement, elation. Later on, bureaucracy, busy work, blisters, sore muscles, aching backs. You get discouraged and you get confused and you want to quit. And Paul is saying, don't quit. Jesus is enough. Stand in him. As Lauren and the team comes up, I'm going to pray over us. And lead us in these moments to respond to him. And my prayer for you is that you would respond to him today in a way that honors him. We've been repeating this phrase that it's not so much the sermon that you hear on Sunday, it's what you do about it between sermons. And so for you, the way to surrender your will is to say, you know what, Jesus, I want to give you a little of my schedule. I want to give you a little bit of my schedule. In fact, I want to make a covenant. I want to make a commitment like we talked about last week. A commitment to community. A commitment to be accountable. To have somebody to take a step forward where someone, even someone new, progressively over time, could speak into my life and and help me hold, cling to the values and commitments that I have made. Surrender for you could be, hey, I want to stop trying to prove stuff. I want to stop irrationally justifying myself, passionately defending myself when in fact I'm guilty and I need to lay that guilt down because I have a Savior who's forgiven me and He really does. Like, He really does. Robert, you don't know. It it doesn't matter. I don't have to know. I I don't have to know about your sin. Where your sin abounds, and I know it does, but His grace super abounds. Pray with me. Father, These moments are yours. Thank you for today. I pray for more and more people here to surrender to you. Lord, when my will has been so contentious, so combative, it hurts me, it affects me, it distances me. My sin grieves you and my sin affects other people. 
continue to teach me, continue to teach us about surrender. And Lord, give us a boldness like these early followers of Jesus. Lord, no empire this day, no no football team, no institution, no political party, no no president, no nobody is greater than the empire of love and sacrifice that Jesus brought to the world. Lord, I pray that with open spirits, we would let you do your work in us. In these moments and as we leave today, in Jesus. Amen. Church, would you stand? The altar is open. And we are down front. Would love an opportunity as God's working in you to pray for you. You come today if we can.